Hello everyone, Tom Clarkson here, welcoming you along to a special F1 summer break edition of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35.2 wireless headphones. Now, like the rest of the F1 paddock, I'm having a short holiday at the moment. So in this week's episode, I'm reflecting on some of my favourite anecdotes from season two so far. Let me tell you, it's been quite a task. As regular listeners will know, we've had some fabulous stories from the great and the good of Formula One from the past and the present day. So whether you've listened to every episode or are joining us for the first time today, I'm sure you'll get a kick out of my selections. I know I did as I was choosing them. And where better to kick off than with a superb anecdote from the fabulously individual Kimi Raikkonen, the man who kick-started Series 2 with a lengthy interview that surprised many of you. The Iceman was in great form as we chatted back at pre-season testing in Barcelona, flanked by his best mate, Sammy Visa. Here he is telling me about a legendary spell in 2013 when he memorably scored back-to-back second places for Lotus, despite a rather boozy couple of weeks in between. Kimmy, I've got to ask you about two-week period mm. between the Bahrain Grand Prix and the Spanish Grand Prix in 2013. I think Sammy was there. Probably Sammy started the whole thing. <laughs> so that's Sammy in the background. Who's how, how do we describe Sammy as a um, friend? Friend, More but I mean, Sammy has been with you since you were 16. You were his mechanic. Yeah. When he was karting, you obviously yeah. decided you were going to be a better driver, and he was a better, better mechanic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was doing some. But um, but Kemi, there was a there was a pretty intense two week period. You finished second in the Bahrain mm. Grand Prix in 2013. You then finished second in the Spanish Grand Prix two weeks later, maybe three weeks later. But um, quite a lot of partying went on. Yeah, but that's normal. Is that me, normal? Yeah, it's very normal. And I. I yeah, maybe it's not in a book everything but for sure on the the whole summer was more or less uh, it was more or less uh, you know uh, raising and partying and but it's you know uh, it's it's nothing it's nothing new uh, so I'm you know, so for me it's normal outside it might look a bit uh, weird but for me in the past it's very normal story so. but Kimmy how how does you know, when you go and do a 16-day binge, mm. which is what you did between... <laughs> I would still have a hangover now. Yeah, but trust me, when, <laughs> once you do it, it doesn't feel that long, actually. So. <laughs> but can, how... how yeah. So, according to what I read, yeah. you stopped boozing, I think, on the Wednesday before Barcelona. Yeah. Yeah, Obviously, right, yeah. Yeah. Thursday morning, maybe. No, no, no. It was Tuesday, Wednesday. Slow down. Only how, how do you food do to get back in the shape. But how can we do? How does the body cope with those extremes? To you be don't, so, so, what I just said that when you give, when you do a lot of practicing, it's uh, it's much easier. Uh, trust me, if I would do it now, it wouldn't be the same anymore. So. Because but it, I don't know, I, you know, you get used to things and uh, like any anything, unfortunately. So. Um, no, no issue. A little bit. I always choked in the past, and, and as long as you have more drinking days than hangover days, you're all fine. So, for sure, on that point, uh, the, the numbers were right. So, but you, you don't think has it in any way had a negative impact on your career? Absolutely not. Do you actually think it's made <laughs> <Yeah>. you? <laughs> do you think it's made you? 
a better driver somehow. I always think, and it, it, obviously it's, it's been a choke often, but actually I think it's more true than choke that <laughs> I often been driving better, being doing all whatever I want between the races than if I'm just not having fun and <laughs> and drinks and stuff. So I honestly think there's all, all, like 2013, it started with the win and there's definitely not just sitting at home <laughs> before. So, you know, it, there's too many proven theories on this story that it it might work better when you have a bit more fun than well, I have to say you want to maybe you more I always thought that you're more relaxed and you need to put more effort and concentration in it because you're a bit like uh, unsure so uh, and then the end result comes better because you put uh, you know it might be he never ceases to put a smile on your face does he I loved speaking to Kimmy a true original and I'm not sure there'll ever be another driver like him And speaking of true originals, F1 characters don't get much bigger and much more enigmatic than Enzo Ferrari. The old man passed away back in 1988, but thankfully we've had the chance to speak to many people who knew and worked closely with El Commendatore, including Luca de Montezemolo, a former president and team manager of the Prancing Horse. There's no doubt that Enzo was a unique individual with plenty of foibles, as Luca told me. Enzo was in the prison of his myth, in a certain way, can you imagine? He has never been in a plane. He has never been in a lift. Sorry to interrupt you. He's never been in a plane. Never. He has never been, uh, if you arrive in a building, in a lift. He has never been to Rome. I remember that in 76 I got married. I said, please, come to my marriage. I didn't, no, no, no. So uh, he was a person, the best natural marketing genius I've seen in my life. He has got marketing his blood, not only technology, marketing. And um, he, uh, he did not uh, attend to the race because, but I, I understand, and a little bit was the same for me, I didn't like to go on Sunday to the race, particularly was when I became chairman and CEO. Different was I was the manager. That was my job, because you have the pressure of the public. You have to answer to your colleagues. You you don't know what is going on because if there is a victory or you don't. He he prefers to be out of the lights, but he's also part of his, let me say, of his myth. You know, it's the same when he was, if he does an interview with you, he puts very, very dark glass. And then when he's finished, he changes the glass. He has a normal glass. You know, it's to protect himself. It's, it's, uh, it was, uh, again, uh, in the prison of the myth. Fabulous stuff there from Luca de Montezemolo. It was such a pleasure to go to his house in Italy for that chat, just as it was to visit David Coulthard at home in Monaco. DC is, of course, still a regular in the paddock and a very popular individual. And boy, can he tell a tale. As I speak, we are, of course, in the middle of the F1 silly season, which brings us nicely to a standout moment from our podcast with DC, the truly remarkable moment when he signed for two teams in one day. Williams and McLaren. Hadn't there been a tug of war over your services at the end of 94 as well? Well, Williams uh, at the end of 94 
told me that they, they wanted to sign a two-year contract. So we agreed terms for 95, 96, went to the factory to sign that contract. And Ron Dennis had already shown interest towards the end of the year in having me come on board for, for uh, 95 and, and beyond. And uh, we went to sign, and I say we, my management at the time, IMG, we went to Didcot to sign the contract. And as I went into the the office, Frank said he changed his mind and he didn't want to do a two-year contract. He wanted to do a one-year contract. And apparently Damon was upsetting him over his negotiation. So I remember Peter Goodman, who was the lawyer for Williams, having got the two-year contract out, looking bemused and confused. And I remember going into Frank's secretary's office next door with my manager and going, well, we now have a one-year contract on the table rather than two years. And so my manager, Tim Wright, said, well, let's phone Ron. He phoned Ron and Ron said, okay, sign a contract, sign the one-year contract with Williams, come to McLaren and we'll do a contract for 96, 97. So I, I signed for Williams, having called McLaren from his building, drove down to Woking and then signed for McLaren and then drove up to Scotland for Christmas and told my mum and dad, there's good news and bad news. The good news is I'm contracted for three years in Formula One. The bad news is it's with two different teams, which was a bit confusing for them. David, what a fantastic... So really, the same day you bounce from one team to the other, 95 with Williams, 6-7 with McLaren. What a great story. And as I walked into McLaren, Martin Brundle was coming out. It was on the weekend and we didn't expect to bump into... To Martin and it was a bit embarrassing because he was a current driver um, and then obviously I guess the penny was was dropping that maybe you know I, I would be joining the team for, for 96. You know what I could listen to DC's lilting Scottish accent all day and what stories we spent an hour and a half with the microphone switched on but it could have gone on and on should we have him back in the future let me know. Now, DC was a British hero from the 90s and noughties. So next, how about we go to one from the 80s? Derek Warwick was an absolute delight to chat to, and he had me crying one minute and laughing the next. In fact, I don't think I've smiled more during an anecdote than when Derek regaled me with the story of his furious run-in with a young Michael Schumacher, back when the German was a hot-shoe sports car driver targeting Formula One, and Derek had recently suffered the loss of his brother, Paul. Well, what happened, you see, is um, it was the first race back with with Jaguar um, at Nürburgring. Um, A lot of pressure. We were in the next year, 14, um, teammate David Brabham. I went out to qualify the car, put it on pole, um, Schumacher went out with a Mercedes, beat me. I went back out, beat him again. He went back out, beat me. So I'm now back out for my last run on, on qualifying tyres. I see him coming, and I'm not sure whether he's on a quick lap or not, um, but I put myself in a, a, I took myself out of his way, but only half out of his way. Um, he was on his second lap, so he wasn't on a quicker lap. Um, he had already done his, his fast time. And as we came out of the, the last corner to the back straight, um, he just drove from one side of the circuit to me and hit the front tire, took the front suspension off and all the front bodywork. So, so completely I, deliberate. Completely deliberate. So I hobbled back to the pits on, on three wheels. Um, and as I get in the pits, I am furious. A lot of the emotion from Paul coming out, uh, first race back, qualifying, he took me off. I'm overreacting. I get out of the car, my mechanics are running to me because I'm nowhere near the garage, um, but I'm, I'm 
at the Mercedes garage, and I know it's a Mercedes. I don't know it's Michael. Um, so I, jumping out of the car, um, while it's still doing 20, 30 mile an hour, my mechanics are stopping the car, and um, I pull my helmet off, throw it in the middle of the, uh, of the pit lane, run into the um, uh, Mercedes garage, and Jean-Louis Schlesher was just taking his helmet off. So as he's taking his helmet off, I'm winding one up to give him one, and, and Jean-Louis says, no, no, Dad, no, 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 Schumacher. And I look over the, the corner of the garage, and Schumacher's running out the back of the garage. So I set off after him. I've now got Mercedes mechanics, I've got Jaguar mechanics, I've got, I've got drivers, I've got all sorts of people, Jochen Mass, I've got everybody chasing. We go in one, one trailer, come out the other trailer, into the back of another trailer, go to the front where there's a little um, office or massage table it was actually. Um, he runs through it and he ch- tries to slam the door on me. I put my foot in it. I've now got him over the massage table, right? And I've got in the room, I think Ross, I'm not sure who was in the room really, but I do remember Jean-Louis Slesher from the back of the room saying, hit him, hit him. <laughs> Seriously, you ask him. Um, and Mass pulled us off, I think. I think Jochen Mass pulled us off because he, he was a tough little bugger as well. So I didn't hit him. Um, it went to the stewards, obviously, um, not from my action, but from Michael's action on the track. Um, and um, they said they would do nothing about it. They didn't want to do nothing about it. We're at Nürburgring, we're with Mercedes, we're with a German driver, um, as long as he come and apologize to me. Um, and he came down to my garage. I, I'd calm down. This, this was, is the same was, day? Or? No, this is Sunday. This right. is race day. And he never looked me in the eyes and said sorry. He just muttered something at the floor and walked away. And that, and that really was it, really. What a story. Just imagine if Del Boy had actually planted one on Schumacher. I wonder if that's what inspired Michael's famous fist-waving at David Coulthard back at Spa in 98. Now, Schumacher, of course, rounded out his F1 career with Mercedes, having spent the bulk of it with Ferrari. And our next anecdote in this special countdown of six comes from a man who had a similar journey from the prancing horse to the Silver Arrows, James Allison. James is one of the most interesting people in the Formula One pit lane. And no matter what he says, he's played an enormous role in Mercedes' current dominance. And one thing's for sure, he'll never forget his first encounter with Lewis Hamilton. My introduction to Lewis was unusual, to say the least. And, uh, but it was revealing about him in a way that has had an important bearing on our, his and my relationship since. So my, my first encounter with him as an employee of Mercedes was in the first winter test of 2017. And we'd been introduced in the morning, shaken hands, and uh, made the sort of looking forward to working with you type noises. And then he'd gone off to do his thing. I'd gone off to do mine. And we didn't we didn't bump into each other until mid-morning of that day where he had clambered out the car because we were doing something to it. And I was stood in the garage looking at some telemetry and he walked over to me, I think, just to be friendly. The run before, he'd been going around the track and he'd had quite a big moment in turn four where back had come loose and he'd kept his foot down and caught it and carried on. And he came up to me and said, hey, did you see, did you see that moment in turn four? And I was thinking, 
well, I sort of know the form here. You know, drivers are drivers like to be told how cool and brave they are. And they are quite cool and brave in many ways. You know, they do do things that the rest of us would probably want a, a good old sit down afterwards. And they they put it straight away to the back of the head and they push on. So I, I sort of know the deal that you you, you need to say, yeah, that was massive. Um, wow. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but equally I didn't want, I didn't want my first interaction with Lewis to be a sort of fawning one. And so I rather unwisely said, yeah, I did see it. But the thing that, the thing that always amazes me about you fuckers is that you come back for more of it the next lap. And in my mind, that was a sort of way of acknowledging in an indirect way that they are unusual people, that they do a, da a dangerous thing that they immediately put it out of their head and they come back around and do it more. But I, I wanted to say it in a way that didn't say like, oh, you're so cool. But it was like, there's something a bit wrong with you guys. That was what was going on in my head. But Lewis's face just... <laughs> was he on the same page or not? No, not at all. He just like, his face just fell. He looked sort of very surprised at me, turned on his heel and sort of walked off in the opposite direction. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> He's not quite getting me. Um... And a little bit later in the day, well, towards that evening, Toto came up to me and said, ah, yeah, uh, James, Lewis said you were pretty rude to him earlier. And I knew what he was talking about, um, but I also knew I hadn't been rude. I might have been ill-judged, but I wasn't rude. I make ill judgments. And, and I said, okay, I know what that was. I wasn't trying to be rude. I'll put it right. Don't worry. I'll go and have a chat with him. We didn't have an opportunity to talk to each other for the for the next day or so. And the first time we did come across each other was back in the factory. And he and I sort of bumped into each other and I and we sort of said, trigger downstairs for a coffee down in the in the canteen. Bit of an atmosphere or not? Um it was clear that both of us wanted to just clear the deal air. with this. Because yeah. Toto Toto absolutely would have said, Lewis, there's no harm in him. Don't he's just got a potty mouth. You, do, you don't need to worry about that. Um, and so it was it was it was just necessary to to put it straight, not that there was gonna be a row. And it was an opportunity to sit in a relaxed way. So we'd go sit downstairs and I I sort of explained where I was coming from um, and and said, but don't worry, you know, I won't it again and he said no oh, no no don't don't fret you know carry on being you i just it was just a weird thing to have as the first thing that someone ever said to you and i thought yeah it probably was but uh but what what then surprised me and this is this is really the part of the story that is is much you know is properly revealing of lewis is that he he said to me look i haven't had a chance to say until now but i just want to say how sorry i was about your wife who had sadly died um six or eight months earlier and and he said i you know i truly truly sorry that's a terrible thing and that completely caught me by surprise in in a very welcome way because a, a death of anyone you love is, is a massive thing and it it runs around your head it still runs my, around my head today i there will not be 10 minutes of my life where i haven't thought of becca since then and it runs around your ha your head continually and it's a lonely sort of world where you're thinking about this pain and very few other people even remember that it happened still less have the courage to acknowledge it and say it because there's a lot of difficulty and embarrassment around am i going to upset the person is it is it wrong is it right 
Um, but it's it's lovely when someone does have the courage to do that because it's an acknowledgement of a loss that matters to you more than anything in the world. And it's a less lonely world when someone does acknowledge that. So, and, I, and it's certainly not what you expect from a driver. So it caught me by surprise and I said, no, thank you. And he, he sort of said, I don't know if it's something you want to talk about or not, but I'm, I just needed to say it. And I told him what I just told you about the fact that it's lovely when people do. And, and he, he took the conversation on a little bit and said, I hope that you find some way of learning to live with it. And I hope that in, in good time, you'll, you'll eventually find happiness again in the future, which is a lovely thing to say. And absolutely, again, not, not where I was expecting to be on a Monday morning in a canteen in a Formula One team talking to a Formula One driver who are not generally the most sensitive of souls. I was deeply grateful to it, but I was also aware that that probably ought to find a way to to bring it to a, a close in a grateful sort of way. And I said, "Well, I I would dearly hope so too, but I, you know, that that happy future that you set out um, that would require me to actually start talking to a girl, and I'm pretty rubbish at that." And uh, and he he looked at me and he smiled and he went, "Well." Maybe just don't call them fuckers. <laughs> so, so that. What a great story, and one that shows a whole other side to Lewis Hamilton. Now, to round things off, here's an anecdote from the irrepressible Jean Alesi, talking about the time that he and Ferrari teammate Gerhard Berger ended up upside down in boss Sean Todd's road car. Now, is it true that you arrived at a test somewhere upside down in a higher car? Yes, that was um, 80% my fault and uh, the rest is fault because I wanted to scare him. Uh, actually, we, we were in uh, Fiorano and he has uh, two tests day one. I was testing day, day two. So I was there in the office of uh, close to Jean Todd and um, he opened the door. He saw me and said, oh, uh, come with me. I go to Fiorano. So I, I came out and when we came, we, we, I, I was out with him on the, on the parking. He said, uh, bring me to Fiorano and said, where is your car? I, said, I don't have a car. So I knew Jean Todd always was leaving his, his car on the front with a key on. So I went in the car, start the car and I start to, uh, to, uh, to drive very, very uh, aggressively to scare him. But the problem is every corner he was, uh, holding the, the end brakes, you know, and uh, it was a Lancia Epsilon 10, I remember very well. And um, we start to make one corner, two corner, and then when we arrive on the front of the uh, the house of Enzo Ferrari, it's a sharp corner, so I brake, downshift, when I turn, it took the end brakes and the car did like that, boom, on the roof. Your boss's car. <laughs> yeah. So um, the mechanics was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> they run to us, they hide the car with a special uh, tent, <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, Gerhard uh, run in the, in the Formula One, he put his, his helmet, everything, and at this uh, moment, Jean Montezemolo and John Barnard arrived, but the car was already, you know, on um, cover with uh, a tail. And um, John Barnard said, uh, what is it, a prototype? Because the front roof was touching the steering wheel, you know, and the rear was like a V, you know. And uh, and nobody, the mechanics didn't reply. And they walked to the, the car and say hello to Gerhardt. I was hiding, you know. 
uh, because I was bleeding a little bit from um, the top of my head. <laughs> and um, Gerhardt, the friend, said to Jean, um, uh, Jean had an accident talking about me. And said, where is, I don't know, he, maybe the, uh, he went to the hospital. So I said, oh, really, really? And they, they were all looking after me because Gerhardt said he had an accident. But then when he found out why and how, he was so upset with me. But anyway. Jean, Jean was upset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. He said, ah, how you can do something like that? But he didn't care about me. He cared about this car, you know? <laughs> Amazing stuff there. They really don't make them like Jean and Gerhard anymore, do they? That's about it for this episode. I really hope you enjoyed listening to those anecdotes as much as I did. We'll be back next week with an extremely special interview with a true legend from the first decade of the Formula One World Championship. I can't wait for you to hear that conversation and all the other great ones we've got lined up for the second half of 2019. There are some great guests coming your way, both from the current grid and some greats from the past. And while you're waiting for the next episode to drop, why not rate and review us on your favorite podcast app? It really helps us and we love to hear what you've got to say. It would be great if you'd tell a friend about the show as well to help us grow our Beyond the Grid community even further. And thanks for your kind comments about last week's episode with Joe Ramirez. Michael Arietta got in touch to say thank you for that podcast. I've adored Joe since his Senna Pros McLaren days. His modesty reflects his adoration for the sport. He is the guy Hollywood should make a movie about. He was the proverbial fly on the wall. He was indeed, Michael. He was indeed. Please keep your feedback coming. We really love it. And remember to use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and you can tweet me at TomClarksonF1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>